Hello and welcome, Tom Pennington. Hello, sir. How are you? Good to see you. Oh, very good, Tom. I'm so excited to be able to speak to you um, about this important subject today. Thank you for joining us. Tom, tell us everything that we need to know about you in 60 seconds. Oh, wow. Well, I, um, I'm the wonderful, um, blessed man because of the ministry God's given me. I have a, a lovely wife, Sheila. I have three daughters uh, who are, my youngest just graduated from Master's College, uh, Master's University, just within the last couple of months. And uh, I am the pastor of Countryside Bible Church in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Been here for 20 years this fall. And for the 16 years before that, I had the joy of being with uh, John MacArthur out at uh, Grace Community Church. I was the managing director of Grace to You for about 12 of those years. And then the last four years, I was the senior associate at the church, as well as uh, John's personal assistant. Uh, so came to Christ as a senior in high school, came out of a home where my dad was was saved before I was born. I'm the youngest of 10 kids. And uh, he was a he was a nightclub entertainer. The Lord saved him out of that. And so when I came along, he was the music director of a church. And so that was the home in which I grew up. Wow. Well, let's go back to that, Tom. I want to hear all about that. So do you remember much about it? How, how did you become a Christian? What, what do you remember about that? Oh, yeah. No, I remember it very well. You know, growing up in a Christian home, I'm sure I'm like a lot of kids who in that in that situation, it's hard for them to sort of really understand exactly when regeneration takes place. But for right. me, it was clear because I made a couple of professions in, of faith when I was younger, one when I was about six, another when I was about 13, and um, and was baptized in both cases with believer's baptism. But um, it really wasn't until I was a senior in high school, I was 17, and I sat in a, a service where I heard one of the very few expository sermons I heard growing up. And this one was on the just the end of Revelation. And as the as the teacher explained those people who wouldn't be in heaven, those groups, I just saw myself showing up again and again in those groups. And the Lord just opened my heart to see. And, you know, it was hard. I went to my pastor at the time and, and he was not an educated man, but the Lord just gave him wisdom to sort of discern what was going on in my heart. And and it became clear to me that I had trusted in a, a plan. I trusted in a in a prayer but salvation's in a person. And that night, right. the Lord just opened my eyes to see that. I repented, believed in Christ. And uh, that was when I was 17 and a senior in high school. And so that was such a clear turning point for me in my life that I've never really questioned that that was the time when the Lord truly redeemed me. Yeah, wonderful. And how soon did you feel according to ministry, Tom? Well, I went off to uh, to school to study pre-law and so that was my senior year in high school. I, I went off to study pre-law. It's what I wanted to do. And after I became a Christian, I just sort of started calling that, you know, God's will for my life, not in a deceptive way, but I didn't know any better. And so that's where I landed. And my sort of explanation was this was a way I could I could help the cause of churches who were being unfairly attacked in the legal system and so forth. But uh, as a junior in college, the Lord put me in the hospital for a couple of weeks in, in a kind of solitary confinement. They thought I had this uh, terribly dread disease. And so um, that's back when it took a while to get the test results. So they right. did the test, set me in uh, isolation, and there I was for two weeks. And all I had with me was my Bible. And uh, I just read through the Gospels. And I remember the second week on Thursday night of uh, that second week, I recognized that you know, the Lord Jesus was a preacher. 
And that's how he revolutionized his ministry to the world. And so it just became so clear to me that my excuses were not really good. And so I didn't know for sure at that point, but I was already preaching in prisons every Saturday night. I was already, you know, preaching to a group of guys. So the Lord had began to exhibit this giftedness. So I had this sort of sense that maybe that's where the Lord wanted to go. But that Thursday night, I just got down in my hospital room floor and said, Lord, I, I don't know for sure what you want with my life, but whatever it is, it's yours. And and if it's if it's the pastor, then that's what I want. And it wasn't more than a couple months until it became clear through counsel and my own heart that that's what the Lord was doing in my heart. Wow. Well, Tom, I've got a hundred questions I would want to ask you about this, but that's not the reason we're here to talk about this today. You've just written a brand new book, which follows on from your outstanding contribution to the Strange Fire Conference. I think which was about 10 years ago now, right? And it was, Strange 2013, Fire. right? Yeah, yeah. A Biblical Case for Cessationism. Tell us all about it, Tom. Well, you know, it was uh, it was a fascinating way in God's providence that came to be. The guys at Grace to You came and asked if I would speak at the conference, and and I started. We started talking about potential topics, and a number of topics were addressed. But but I asked them. I said, "Is there anyone who is really looking at and laying out the best biblical case for cessationism?" They said, "You know, not yet. We'd love for you to do that." And so that's really how it came to be. And that was a wonderful several months for me, just digesting everything I get my hands on. Uh, in terms of both pro and con and trying to get my arms around all of the best arguments uh, for and against and and sort of understanding where people were coming from. And then out of that, uh, one of the I think one of the strengths God has given me and others have affirmed, I trust, is sort of an ability to synthesize. And so I realized there wasn't one resource that laid out all of the best arguments. There were books, great books, and and I've recommended them that that deal with one or two of those arguments, but there wasn't like an overview of this is why we believe this. So out of that came this the message I preached at Strange Fire. I put together the seven best arguments for cessationism from a from a, mostly from a biblical. One of them is is historical, um, and then you know since that conference, I and and the folks at Grace to You have told me as well. They just continue to hear, and I continue to hear of people that the Lord has used that message. In some cases, they are believers who already embraced cessationism, but weren't sure why. They needed they needed the biblical understanding of the issue. And then the other side of it was those who were part of the charismatic movement, and they knew the Lord, loved him, loved his word, but and they knew something wasn't quite right, but they didn't fully understand why. And the Lord just used the truth of his word to open up their minds to see it. And and so probably still 10 years later, about once a month, somebody will come to my church and and that will be the story in terms of what the Lord's done. So it just was clear there was this need. And I've thought about it, prayed about it. And then the folks at G3 approached and and were putting together a documentary, wanted to put together a book and and ask if I'd be willing to do that. And so the Lord and his providence just sort of wove all that together and here we are yeah well wherever you're watching or listening to this interview we're going to make sure that there's a link to both the uh the the, the um, session that we're talking about as well as the book for pre-order as well so make sure that you check that out um tom i, I didn't plan to ask you this but just in you talking about um your upbringing and and um you know being raised uh, in a christian family 
was it always a cessationist church? Did you ever did you ever dabble in any of the charismatic uh, sort of teachings uh, as you was raised as a Christian? Yeah, no, I didn't at all. In fact, you know, it's interesting. I'm I'm old enough now to sort of have seen all of this transpire. And I would say in the evangelical community, those who really embraced the gospel, and particularly those who embraced the sufficiency of Scripture, that was a closed issue and considered a closed issue. Um, and so there really were these two completely separate camps that claimed Christianity in, in terms of the continuationist and, and the cessation. And um, and it really came down to what you thought and believed about the Scripture. But of course, in the last 40 to 50 years uh, from the charismatic renewal in the, in the 60s and then certainly in the 80s with the third wave and John Wimber and all of that, it has become so muddied that that people don't even understand that reality. So, yeah, I grew up in a setting where if you were truly a Bible committed believer, you you trusted the sufficiency of Scripture. That wasn't even a question. Yeah. Well, let's start at the beginning. What is the charismatic movement and why should we care, Tom? Well, it's it's a movement that really grew in the last century. I mean, you know, if you want to look at it and even even those in the charismatic movement would say there there's sort of a, a progression of how it trans it's transpired. But and, and maybe we'll talk about that in a moment, sort of the, the history of it. But but I would say if you had to put your arms around it, it's defined by this. And that is their continuationism. They believe that the miraculous gifts that were present in and characterized the ministry of the the early church and specifically the ministry of Jesus and the apostles, that that, those miraculous gifts are absolutely for today, that God intends for those gifts to be present in most, if not all churches. And of course, it depends. There's a continuum, but but that it's, it's present and it's normative that it's right for that to be there and to be sought. And so that really is the heart of the charismatic movement, is that the miraculous is key and that it has continued and God intends for it to continue, not just in a place here or there, but as normative for the church. Yeah, thanks, Tom. So what is the history of a charismatic church and why has it become so popular today? Well, I mean, when you think about the modern charismatic movement, of course, if you look at church history, there have been sporadic outbursts of claims for this sort of thing. It's not like it's never shown up on the radar, but but frankly, it's sparse when you look at the flow of church history. That's a big problem, honestly, for continuationists. But but when you look at the modern charismatic movement, it really began out of uh, uh, an event that occurred with Charles Parham. He was a... Uh, a Pentecostal Methodist kind of minister in the U.S. And in the early 1900s, in fact, it was 1901, that um, they a group was praying for the miraculous gifts and, and a woman um, wanted to be able to speak in tongues and Parham laid his hands on her and they became convinced because of what transpired that she had begun to do so. That was afterwards, by the way, disproven. Because when some of those who claimed to have the gift of tongues, and they thought it was speaking in languages that they had not studied, they were not at this point claiming that it was some sort of uh, ecstatic language, but rather they were they were languages that they had not studied and now been enabled to speak. When they started traveling to countries 
around the world and attempting to communicate, they discovered that, in fact, what they had was not the legitimate gift. So it, it almost didn't take off. But but thanks to, you know, the Azusa Street revival and all that happened there that came out of that in the early 1900s, it had a new life. And that was really the first part of the charismatic movement, the, the early 1900s and the Pentecostal renewal. A second sort of wave, they would say, came along in the 1960s with the charismatic renewal. And then finally, there's a, there's talk of the third wave, which John Wimber and the Vineyard Church would claim really took off in the 1980s. And then there's been a, a sort of uh, offshoot of that uh, that's come through John Wimber, and that's the New Apostolic Reformation. But that's sort of the the package of the movement, the modern charismatic movement, that's how it's unfolded over the last hundred years. Yes, helpful. Thank you, Tom. A cessationist is often caricatured as someone that doesn't believe in the Holy Spirit. Tell us why that's so wrong and explain to us what a cessationist does actually believe, Tom. Well, it, it absolutely is wrong. I, I I teased when I started my message at the uh, Strange Fire Conference that it was clear no advertising executive was involved in naming our position because who wants to be a cessationist, Right. That's inherently negative sounding. And, and because of that label, it has been caricatured, as you said. It's It has been described as we don't believe in the work of the Holy Spirit. We don't believe that he's still at work today. And the truth is that's contrary entirely to what a, what a cessationist believes. In fact, I would put it this strongly. Nothing eternal happens in our world today apart from the Holy Spirit. Nothing, not a conversion, not conviction, not conversion, not the the ability to comprehend and grasp God's truth, not the exercise of my teaching gift, not the exercise of a serving gift in the church, not one step of spiritual growth. Nothing, nothing happens that's spiritually eternal apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. So the reality is he is the the one appointed to apply our redemption to us, both at the, the moment of conversion and throughout our Christian lives to seal us and to usher us into glorification. And so he is our constant companion. The spirit of Christ dwells within us, Paul says, or, or you don't belong to him. And so we have the abiding presence of the spirit dwells us, who saves us, who fills us, who enables us to fulfill the, the calling that we've received in the scripture and to obey him. So it is absolutely patently wrong to argue that cessationists don't believe in the Holy Spirit or don't believe that the Holy Spirit is active today. That's not the issue at all. There's only one question, and that is, does the Holy Spirit today give the miraculous gifts to believers in churches? Is that normative for today? That's the question. And that's the only difference between continuationists and cessationists in terms of the, the big picture of the work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And what are those miraculous sign gifts that we're talking about, Tom? Well, you know, when you when you look at the, the New Testament, you have really four lists of the spiritual gifts in the New Testament. When you put it together, and there's some debate on this, but in my own count, I, I think you can identify 18 separate spiritual gifts that are enumerated in those four lists throughout the New Testament. And when you look at those that are miraculous, that that clearly are not 
simply teaching God's word or or serving or administrating, but they're clearly miraculous in in their function. It it seems to me, and again, there's disagreement. I, I admit that when we look at one or specific gift, you know, different different people may define it differently. But for me, as I've studied it, I think there are 10 temporary sign gifts. And I think those 10 temporary sign gifts that were present in the early church fall into two categories. And that is they are either revelatory, that is God is revealing his His truth through them, or they're there as confirmation of that revelation. So either their revelation, take prophecy, for example, there you have someone speaking revelation from God. That is consistently the definition of prophecy throughout the scripture. Someone speaking the very words of God, revelation from God, not teaching God's word, but speaking revelation from God. So then you have gifts that confirm, miraculous gifts that confirm that that person who says, I'm speaking revelation from God, is in fact speaking revelation from God. So things like miracles, healings, um, the gift of tongues, as well as the interpretation of tongues. Those are confirmational gifts. That is, in the gift, in the case of tongues, you have both because you have revelation potentially connected to it, and then you have the miraculous ability to speak a language you haven't studied confirming that gift. So that's how I would I would look at them, and and so you have under revelation. Just to give you the list. I personally would put the gift of apostle, prophecy, distinguishing of spirits, word of wisdom, word of knowledge. Those are all revelatory. And then as far as confirming the one who claims to bring that revelation is truly from God. You have miracles, healings, faith, tongues, and interpretation of tongues. That's how I would would understand the miraculous or the temporary sign gifts. Yeah, really helpful. So what was the purpose of these sign gifts during this age? What what you know, what was the actual purpose? What was the reason that they they were in place at the time, Tom? Well, I think the chief reason when you look at it, and this is a major point that I'll I make in the book, made in the message back in 2013, is that miracles always exist to confirm the messenger. I mean, you go back, when when you look at the history of the scripture, you look at the flow of of biblical history, there really are only three short 60 to 70 year time periods in all of that history when men were given the power to work miracles. Now, let me just distinguish that because some have misunderstood what I'm saying. Of course, God can intervene directly and work a miracle whenever he chooses, and at times does throughout the flow of biblical history. We're not talking about that. The issue is, has God given men the capacity to work miracles? When you look at that, there really are only three time periods. You have the period of Moses, you have the period of Elijah and Elisha, and you have the time of Jesus and the apostles. And in all three of those cases, when you look at the the years they ministered, you're looking at about a 60 to 70 year time span. So out of all of biblical history, that's the the time period when miracle working men existed on the earth. And then you have to look at each of those times and what is said about the miracles they work. And in, in, in all three cases, in all three of those periods, it's absolutely clear. The miracles were there to confirm that they were God's messenger. 
I, I think that it's clear in all three cases. And again, I'll make this point in the book. So encourage your listeners to pick it up. But 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 I think if you go back to the very first one, if you go back to Moses, it's so clear because God says, Moses, you're going to go and you're going to be my prophet and you're going to speak for me. And Moses says, well, what if they don't believe that I'm from you? That's a valid question, right? I mean, if I'm on the if I'm in the, the camp of the children of Israel, I'm going to ask that question. Who are you right. and where'd you come from and how do I know? And so God said, absolutely. So I'm going to give you the capacity to work miracles. And that will confirm that you speak for me. In the context of the first miracles given to Moses, that's crystal clear. Read You read Exodus 4, you read ex, the end of Exodus 6 and Exodus 7, becomes crystal clear that that was the purpose. You see the same yeah. thing with Elijah. You know, Elijah says, show God I'm thinking of Mount Carmel now. He says, show God that I am your prophet, that you are God and I am your prophet and speak on your behalf. And the fire comes down. And then when you come to Jesus and the apostles, you see the same thing. I mean, in Acts chapter 10, Peter says, Jesus was confirmed to be the messenger from God, confirmed to be the Messiah, confirmed by the miracles that he was enabled to work. And then you see the same thing with the apostles. So, Everywhere you find miracles, you find it confirming a person who's speaking for God, revelation from God. Yeah, yeah. Really helpful, Tom. Thank you. Today, when people refer to speaking in tongues, they in most cases are talking about speaking in some sort of babble, which they claim is a angelic language. This is different to what we saw at Pentecost, right? Oh, it's so different. In fact, that's what I often do with people who have this question is I said, let's go back to Acts 2, because that's where it all started. And when you look at Acts 2, it's crystal clear in the context, because what you have the apostles doing is speaking the word of God in known languages. In fact, the word uh, the word from which we get the English word dialect is used in that, in that text. And so it's clear that you have all of these languages represented there at Pentecost, people who'd come for the feast from all over the world, and they're listed. Their nationalities are listed. And then they say, when they hear the apostles teaching and preaching in tongues, as it's called there, they say, we each are hearing the word of God in our own language. So it's crystal clear what happens in Acts 2. It is the capacity God miraculously gave the apostles to speak in languages, a lot of languages that they themselves did not know. They were unlearned men, as they're referred to. They're, many of them simple Galileans, fishermen, and they were able to speak languages that they shouldn't have been able to speak. It was a miraculous gift given to them to speak the word of God in a known language to people who could understand them in that language. There's, there's really no dispute about that. I mean, if you look at Acts 2, there's no question. So then you come to Acts 10, the next time it occurs, and, and is, is stated clearly there, it's, it's clear that Peter says in, in chapter 11 of Acts, as he's reporting on the events of Acts 10, he says the same thing happened to them, that is Cornelius and his household, as happened to us at the beginning. So he says it's the same thing. And there's no reason to doubt that it's exactly the same thing in Acts 19, where it occurs there. And so it, it is a different thing entirely. 
than than what is made clear. What's interesting too, some people will say, well, that's different than First Corinthians 14. Well, when you look at the 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 timeline, remember Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, was a traveling companion of Paul. And he wrote Acts after Paul wrote First Corinthians. And yet there's not a hint of some sort of angelic or prayer language or anything like that. He is he is absolutely clear. These are known languages that the apostles were enabled enabled to speak miraculously. Yeah, yeah. There are people that say that you're not truly saved unless you speak in tongues. What would you say to them, Tom? Well, I mean, I would say that first of all, there there's nowhere that that is clearly stated in Scripture. In fact, you know, again and again, the the Scriptures are clear that that um, there are results of salvation, but that's not stated clearly as a result of salvation. I would moreover say that it's actually contradicted by Scripture, because when you really look at 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, Paul's whole point there is that the Spirit sovereignly decides who gets these gifts. You need to stop assuming that everybody's going to have the same gift. God put, as he argues in 1 Corinthians 12, God puts different members in the body for different functions. And so the the very context in which this appears says that God's not going to give this same gift to everybody. He gives gifts as he chooses, and he gives different gifts, just like our the members of our body are different and serve different functions. So the very context of 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 makes it clear that when we are gifted, we are gifted differently intentionally by God to serve in different capacities and roles. And and yet when you when you run into those who really press this, you know, if you're really a Christian, you're going to speak in tongues, they cannot prove that and in fact are contradicted by 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. Yeah, yeah. I think I've heard you say before that the way in which most charismatics speak in tongues today is no different to, to Roman Catholics and even Hindus. That, if ever there was one, should be a huge flag, right? Absolutely. It should be a huge flag because, again, if this is incontrovertibly, if speaking in tongues is incontrovertibly a work of the Spirit, then others shouldn't have the capacity to do that. And yet, uh, when you look at, at uh, you know, Roman Catholics, most of whom don't understand the biblical gospel, who reject uh, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, they some of them manifest this uh, supposed gift. And the same thing with even those who are pagans, who reject the God of the Bible. That same phenomenon can be found in other places, clearly not a work of the Spirit. And so at the very least, I mean, even those who would press this, at the very least, this means that it can be and often is done without the Holy Spirit. And therefore, there ought to be a huge red flag on that point alone. Yeah, yeah. We see all sorts of people going around today calling themselves apostles. What would the Bible have to say about this? And what are the Bible the biblical qualifications for becoming an apostle, Tom? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, there are two sort of camps in the charismatic movement on this issue. One would say, well, there really aren't any apostles today like there were in the first century. They're sort of a different tier. 
And then you have some, particularly connected to the New Apostolic Reformation, who would argue that we do have apostles today who are who are absolutely equal in authority to the New Testament apostles. Um, in both cases, they're ignoring the the clear um, evidences of an apostle, or we could say the prerequisites for, the requirements for, or qualifications for an apostle. When you look at the New Testament, sort of the clearest place to see this unfold is in Acts chapter 1, when they're looking to, to fill the role of Judas. And they begin to discuss, you know, what's required of the person we're going to put in his place, what's required of him. And it really comes down to three qualifications. They had to be eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. Secondly, they had to have personally been appointed by Christ. And, and they couldn't just say, yes, I've been appointed. I mean, even with Paul, he had to be confirmed as appointed by the other apostles. So it, they had to be been appointed by Christ, and that had to be confirmed by those who had the authority to do so. And then thirdly, they had to have the ability to work miracles. You see this with the 12 in, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1 and following, where where Jesus gives the 12 that capacity again to confirm that they're his representatives. They're speaking on his behalf. And then you even see it with the Apostle Paul, uh, who talks about, you know, I I have done and shown the signs of the apostles by the miracles I've worked and so forth in 2 Corinthians 12, 12. So when you look at those qualifications, first of all, some argue, well, by those qualifications, Paul doesn't qualify. Well, he absolutely does. He saw the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. He was appointed by Christ. Christ said, I have appointed him. He said that to Paul, and he said that to, to uh, Ananias as well. And, and then the apostles in, in Galatians 1, the other apostles confirmed that he was in fact appointed by Christ. And then finally, you see that he had the ability to work miracles. So Paul was there as well. That's the first thing you see is that those who really served as New Testament apostles, they met those qualifications. The second thing you see is there can't be any apostles today because there's nobody alive who meets those qualifications. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's a lot more common in the charismatic church than it is in reform circles to talk about casting out demons. How should we view this today? Well, I, I mean, I think the the last revelation we see on casting out demons is interesting you know it comes in in acts chapter 19 where the seven sons of Sceva attempt to cast out demons and the demon's response is very interesting the demon says to them look i i know jesus i recognize jesus and and i know the apostle paul but who are you it's clear, even from the testimony of a demon, that the capacity to perform that was given to Jesus and the apostles. And so there's no indication that you and I should go around casting out demons. There's no biblical evidence that warrants an individual Christian from doing that. Yeah. And do you believe that people can still be demon possessed today, Tom? And another question I'm sure you've been asked before is can a Christian become demon possessed? Yeah. To the first question, absolutely. I think, you know, Satan is still very much at work in the world. And I think um, there have been at least twice in my life when I really felt I was in the presence of someone who was demon-possessed. I mean, I can't be sure of that, but I, I'm, I'm 
more sure than not that uh, that I was. So I, absolutely, I think that happens today. I mean, obviously, demon possession was concentrated in Palestine in the first century during the ministry of Jesus, because Satan knew Jesus was there, and he hurled all of his arsenal at Christ and what was going on there. So I think it was it was probably more common there in the first century than it would be in most places in the world. But I still think it absolutely exists uh, in terms of unbelievers. I mean, when you look at the word in the New Testament, the Greek word is really demonized. And and you see that with unbelievers. With believers, absolutely not. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And greater is he who is in us, John says, than he who is in the world. And so um, there is no way that the Holy Spirit is going to allow uh, us to be taken up residence by by a demon representing Satan when he himself indwells, seals, and controls us. Yeah, yeah. The worst false teachers of our generation all come out of this movement that we're talking about. Why is there such a lack of discernment or even placing of their own denomination? I think it comes back to the Scripture. I mean, I think in the end, there is in many cases, an abysmal ignorance of Scripture, because once you become obsessed with God speaking to you in some way outside of the Bible, that becomes dominant. You know, I often say to my own congregation, look, if you have to choose between God speaking to you individually, personally, in real time today, or God speaking to you through a two to 3,000-year-old book and speaking to you as he speaks to all the rest of his children, which are you going to choose? That's a no-brainer. It's like, oh man, let God speak personally and directly to me today. That's the the tendency of our nature. But God was wiser than that, and He's given us, you know, His eternal Word, and that's that's a great resource. But when you discount that resource, then this is what happens. There's not a check because you're weighing God's revelation, and there's there really for most of the movement there is a tendency to almost embrace the new revelation above the old revealed revelation. And, and that's because there's an ignorance of it. I think, you know, Scripture is so often abused by charismatic teachers where they, they take verses and, and passages out of their context that many in that movement have no idea how to really interpret the Bible. They don't have a hermeneutic for you know, a method of interpretation for how to work out what the scriptures mean. And so they're at a loss. And so they're never going to say uh, because of that. And I think there's also a fear of what they would say is blaspheming the Holy Spirit or, or quenching the Spirit to say, no, that's not true. That's not right. That doesn't line up with the scripture. And so you put all that together and it's a terrible mix. And in the end, creates an environment where they're not only not policing what's done and said, they don't really have a, a method or a mode to do so because who are they to say that isn't the spirit? Yeah. Yeah. Evangelism for charismatics often looks like asking people if they want prayer for some sort of medical condition, telling them that God loves them and then disappearing into the night. Why is this so dangerous? Well, I think it's dangerous on two counts. One, because it is it is a contradiction of the biblical model of evangelism. You know, what does Jesus say when he gave us the the Great Commission? 
He says, you need to go into all the world and and you need to make disciples of all the nations and then baptize them and teach them. And making disciples is very clear in his ministry. And, uh, and it's very clear in what the apostles do. They call people to renounce their sin, or as Jesus put it in Mark 1, you know, I love that, that summary of Jesus' own ministry of the gospel in Mark 1, where Mark records there the first message that, that Mark himself records of Jesus, and it says Jesus came preaching the gospel. And what did he say? He said, repent and believe the gospel. You want into my kingdom? You need to repent of your sins. Same message John the Baptist was preaching. And you need to believe the good news about me, who I am and my work, what I came to accomplish. I predicted, you know, as far as far ago as uh, so clearly in Isaiah 53, where 700 years before Christ, the Messiah would redeem by standing in the place of sinners, absorbing God's wrath on their behalf. So Jesus' message of the gospel was, you need to repent of your sins, and you need to believe in me and who I am and the mission I've come to do, which is save you from your sins and uh, to live, to die, and to be raised from the dead in order to redeem you from your sins. So to, that's that's the first problem. It, it's a, it's a convolute, convoluted way to express the gospel. In addition, it runs contrary to Jesus' own approach. You know, again, talking about Mark's gospel, I love, I love how in in early the early chapters of Mark, Jesus has these huge crowds show up who want to be healed. And, you know, it's the end of a Sabbath day and, and a long Sabbath day, and everybody departs. And then he goes away and gets up early the next morning to pray. And the crowds are looking for him again. And the disciples are like, wow, this is a great thing we've got going. And we need we need Jesus because this is just getting kicked off. And what does Jesus say? He basically says, no, we're going to leave because I didn't come to heal. I didn't come to work miracles and to heal people of their sicknesses. That's not the primary reason I came. I came to preach. And so we're going to go to other cities where I can preach and yeah. preach that message of the gospel. And so... It's so clear, both from how the gospel is set forth in the scripture and Jesus' own model and and the way he talked about preaching versus healing, that that is really an abuse of the ministry of Jesus. Yeah. What is the motivation for the fake faith healers such as Benny Hinn? And why did they go very quiet during COVID? Surely, if they believed in what they were doing, they would have called up the newspapers to to follow them around the local hospital, wouldn't they? And we could have cleared it out. But why didn't this happen? Yeah, you know, it, as far as motivation, I mean, you know, as I do, that there there's a range of motives. I, I think there are probably a few of the of the more sane people who are claiming those things who are caught up and and even come to believe some of those things about themselves. But so many of them are just, they're, they're charlatans. They're deceivers. They know that they can't do those things. And like is described in several of the epistles in the New Testament, whether you're talking about Second Peter or Jude, they're, they're after money. They're after favors from women. They're after all of the worst things. And, and just to have their own pride built up. You know, arrogant is a word that's used so frequently of uh, of false teachers in the New Testament. And so I think that's all involved. But to your to your question about why didn't they, you know, during the COVID thing, why did they go quiet? It's because clearly they didn't have the capacity 
to heal. You know, by their definition, they can heal at will. Of course, the way they give the caveat is, well, it didn't happen because the person didn't have enough faith. Uh, That's not New Testament healing. You see Jesus healing even when faith is, is low. And at times healing and raising from the dead when there's when he's intervening directly, there's no faith on the part of the person at all. Yeah. The word prophecy in the charismatic movement points to something very different from what we see in the Bible today. It looks a lot more like fortune telling, doesn't it? What do you think about this, Tom? Yeah, well, again, as you know, uh, just to clarify for your listeners, there really in the charismatic movement today are two camps. Very few believe that they're getting prophecy at the level of Scripture. Um, You know, very few would say that when there's a prophecy in the modern charismatic movement, it is inspired in the same way that we would say the Bible is inspired. Instead, what they've created, most charismatics have created a sort of two-tier system of prophecy. And this really comes out of the writings of Wayne Grudem, who has sort of given them this, this model. But on the on the one hand, they would say, yes, there is the prophecy revealed to the the prophets of the Old Testament, to the apostles of the New, that is Scripture. That's prophecy at a whole different level, and that's really not what we're doing. Instead, they would argue that in Scripture, and they would use like the the prophecy of Agabus in the book of Acts, it would say, no, there's a there's a second tier prophecy. And this is, uh, as as some in the movement put it, I think this is what the Holy Spirit is saying, uh, as opposed to thus saith the Lord. But in reality, when you look at Agabus, for example, you look at that story, and I make this point in the book, he uses the, the same language, the same certainty that the that the Old Testament prophets used. So there is no biblical defense for the second tier of prophecy. And um, and so what you really have is people taking either their desires for others, their their fortune in a sense, they're projecting and guessing at their future, and and they're saying, I think this is what the Holy Spirit's saying. But um, but there's no there's no thus saith the Lord. And you know the yeah. real the real issue for that is is it contradicts the standard for prophets that's set throughout the scripture, particularly in the Old Testament. Yeah, that's right, because it's just this uh, just give it a go attitude, isn't it? People are taught to speak in tongues and people are encouraged to give a word from the Lord. But there were serious consequences for getting these things wrong 2,000 years ago, wasn't there? Oh, it, serious consequences. And long before that, you know, I'd go yeah. back to when prophecy begins in the time of Moses. And, you know, Moses predicted in Deuteronomy that there would be other prophets like him. And he understood, God understand understood through Moses that there would be abuses. And so he lays down this clear set of standards in Deuteronomy for who would be received as a prophet. And in Deuteronomy 13, he's very clear. He basically says, you need, and Deuteronomy 18, you put the two together, you need to look at this person, first of all, and most importantly, are they speaking in keeping with previous revelation? In other words, does it match what's already been revealed? We could put it in modern terms. Does it agree with what the Bible says? And um, because in Deuteronomy 13, he says, even if somebody can work a miracle, it's a true verifiable miracle. But what he says is contrary to 
the revelation that's already been given, then stone him. He's a false prophet. So a miracle alone was not a testimony to a true prophet. Um, and, and you know, then you come to, to Deuteronomy uh, 18, and you see that at times prophets would be given the capacity in Deuteronomy 13 to speak, I'm sorry, to uh, confirm what they spoke with miracles. And that was the measure as well. Again, God says, just like with Moses, if I send somebody to speak my very words, to give you new revelation, I'm going to confirm that they're my, my messenger. You don't have to doubt whether or not they're from me. Yeah, yeah. You would have heard seemingly sincere reports of people claiming that they've actually heard God audibly speak to them. In fact, I think I've even heard R.C. Sproul say that he feels that he did. What do you think of this, Tom? Well, I mean, obviously, um, I would disagree. I don't think there's any biblical warrant for saying that God speaks audibly today to individuals. And I, I would simply go to, um, you know, Hebrews 1. You know, God, who in in previous times spoke in different ways through the prophets, has now spoken to us in these last days by his Son. The clear import of that passage is that God's final revelation, his last word to us, came through his son and the apostles. And there's no reason for us to expect God to speak to us today. Now, you know, I wouldn't, I'm not going to put God in a box and say God can't do that if he were to choose. I mean, he's God, he can do whatever he wants. But the, the real question comes back, and this is where it always comes with this issue, is, is that normative and is it to be expected by Christians today? And my response to that is absolutely not. I think most of the time when you hear these reports, they're usually third hand and there's no way to verify it. There's no way to have experienced it, to have seen it. And so you're left um, just saying, uh, I, you got to look and say, what does the Bible say? You know, that's that's what you always have to ask is what does the Bible say? There are a lot of people who claim to have had a lot of different experiences and you have to say, does the Bible give warrant for that? Yeah. yeah, that's right. What role does music play within the charismatic church? Mm. You know, I think I think um, there is, in fairness, a desire to worship. I think many have that desire in their hearts. I think, um, you know, I've I've attended some events and also witnessed others via, you know, online and I would say that there's usually a tendency to use music beyond its reasonable use. That is the worship of God and, you know, Colossians and Ephesians teaching others the truth. Um, those are the legitimate uses of music and worship, to worship God and to instruct one another in the truth of, of God's word. But I think in addition to that, often in the charismatic circles, there's a there's a tendency to use music to set an atmosphere, to create a mood. Sometimes it's by repetition, just like um, often people are taught to speak in tongues by by mindless repetition of phrases or words. Um, I think in the same way, music can be used to create a, an atmosphere in which there's a greater receptivity to that, sort of a suggestible atmosphere for you know, building up this emotional sense. If you if you watch some of the the faith healers uh, on television and and their massive arena events, 
This is what they do. They set an aura, an expectation that something truly miraculous is going to happen. And they do that in a, in a variety of ways. And I think music plays into that to sort of raise the the energy, the expectation, the suggestibility of of yeah. people who fall in that group. Yeah, it's also almost hypnotic, isn't it, Tom? Yeah. The way that it the way that it's performed. No, you're do we right. See any evidence? Yeah. Yeah. Do we see any evidence of the charismatic gifts beginning to cease even during the time of the apostles? Oh, absolutely. You know, I think, you know, when you look at um, where the the gifts, let's take speaking in tongues, for example. That's obviously a key one, often argued that you're not a Christian if you don't speak in tongues. When you look at the, that gift, you have the first appearance in Acts 2, which is just 10 days after the Lord's ascension. The second one comes in, in Acts chapter 10, which was just before the death of James, so about 44 AD, so about 14 years after um, Jesus' resurrection and ascension. And then in Acts 19, you're looking at about 50 AD. So all of those happen within a relatively short period of time in the early church. The The next occurrence you have is 1 Corinthians 14, written shortly thereafter, the early 50s AD. Now think about this. That was Paul's fourth letter in the inspired record. So 1 Corinthians, his fourth letter, it mentions tongues. He wrote nine letters after that. None of them mentioned tongues. And the three letters that he wrote clearly and intentionally to set the tone and direction of life in the church, the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, have no mention at all. And so... When you look at that, it's clear that there is a diminishing uh, amount of miracles being performed in the early church. And I think the clearest one is when you get to Hebrews chapter 2, because the book of Hebrews, we know, uh, there's almost universal agreement, was written just before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, because clearly if the writer of Hebrews wanted to punctuate that the system had come to an end, he would have mentioned that, but he doesn't. And so most people agree it was written shortly before that. Well, you have the writer of Hebrews, and of course, there's a lot of debate about that. I'm sure you and I could uh, could have a good discussion about that. But when you look at the writer of Hebrews in, in Hebrews 2, he says that there was the gospel which came through the Lord. We shouldn't ignore this gospel. It came through first through the Lord, he says. And then it was confirmed to us by those who heard it. So now he's talking about the apostles. The apostles heard directly from the Lord, and now the apostles are communicating that gospel to the writer of Hebrews and what he puts in a third generation. But what's interesting is he says in that context, and their message, the, the message of the apostles, was confirmed, past tense, to us by these miracles, and he goes on to describe that. And so clearly the writer of Hebrews is saying that all of those miraculous things, those were to confirm the message of the apostles. And the clear implication is those things are not happening in my generation, the, the generation of the writer of the book of Hebrews. Yeah, brilliant. How does church history support cessationism? Well, it really supports it in two ways. I, I think the hardest thing for our continuation as friends is, is they have to admit that what's supposed to be normative in the life of the church 
is largely missing from the record of church history. And so, you know, they have to somehow argue that that most of the church through most of church history was completely out of sync with what the scriptures teach. But I think that the second way that church history testifies is when you look at the major voices, the men on whose shoulders we stand, from the very beginning of the early church fathers, and in, in the book I document, you know, a number of, of the early church fathers, as well as moving through church history, certainly you get to the time of the Reformation again and again, through modern times, the leading voices, the voices that have instructed the church, taught the church, um, you have them all with one voice saying that the miraculous gifts ceased with the apostles and are no longer for today. And so church history testifies in both of those ways. Yeah. Tom, you worked alongside John MacArthur for 16 years, I believe. What's your greatest memory of that time? <laughs> you know, that's a hard thing. There's so many. But but I think for me, I needed, I went to Grace Church in, in 1987 with really one desire, and that was I wanted to be a pastor. But And, I, and I'd studied the scripture, been to seminary, but I didn't feel like I had ever seen a New Testament church. I didn't feel like I'd ever seen a church that was really serious about, you know, we're going to do whatever the scripture says, we're really going to seek to do that and let the chips fall where they fall. This is what we're going to be committed to doing until I got to Grace Church. And I really felt like when I got there, the chief thing that just jumps out at me through those 16 years is a an utter confidence in the sufficiency of scripture you know if god if it's important it's in god's word and we need to study it we need to know it and even with you know building up god's people we don't need to do the dog and pony show and and the lights and the props and the fog machines we need to teach god's people god's word and the holy spirit will build them up and so i think for me it wasn't one thing or one event as much as it was one lesson that just, I saw it everywhere. I caught it. I have that confidence in my own ministry because I saw it lived out. If if I had to go to sort of um, those things that just stick in your mind, I think it would be some of those those sayings that John taught us, whom, uh, whom he mentored, that just, they're always there in my mind. You know, if I had to, if I had to give you a couple of them, one of them, one of them was that he said all the time, he said, Look, our job as preachers of God's word is not to be the chef. We're not to come up with a meal. We're just the waiter. And our job is to get the meal to the table without messing it up. Uh, you know, that's that's a constant reminder to me. Uh, another one was, uh, you know, I often would travel with him or be at conferences where there were pastors. And invariably, somebody would ask the question, so, so John, how do you establish a a really effective long-term pulpit ministry. And I think they expected something, you know, deeply spiritual sounding. Um, and and of course, he absolutely believes in the work of the Spirit, relying on the Spirit and that sort of thing, prayer. But his answer was always this. Here's, here's the key. Keep your rear in the chair until the work's done. <laughs> I told him recently, you know, he sits on my shoulder every week reminding me, right. Keep your rear in the chair till the work's done, because you can't be a faithful steward. You can't be diligent unless you've really 
stayed until you understand the text as best you can uh, and what God has revealed. So those are the kinds of things that just jump out at me from my time there. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And if that wasn't a big enough blessing, I understand you was working alongside Jerry Rag as well at the same time, right? Yeah, that's right. There were there were a group of us whom the Lord sent out and we're now, you know, the Lord's blessed us in our own ministries. But we're 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 a band of brothers. We love the same things and are grateful for what we learned under John and his ministry. We're committed to the same priorities and we love each other and appreciate each other. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. Tom, we're about to take a very quick break and then we're going to come such a pleasure speaking to you for the last hour. Thank you so much for your time, Tom. Before we let you go, please take a moment to let us know your closing thoughts and also let people know how they can keep in contact with you. Well, I would just say, you know, if you're able, when the when the book comes out, pick it up because and and look at it biblically, you know, be a Berean. And, you know, if you're if you're unconvinced, then see if the case is made. But you know, it's all, it's not about what I think or or you think. It's about what does the Bible say? And that's what I try to do. So at least deal with that honestly and work through it and see if you agree that those arguments are biblical arguments and if they're convincing. I, I trust and hope you'll find them that. Uh, I would also ask if they're interested at all, they can subscribe to the Word Unleashed ministry on our website, thewordunleashed.org. Uh, you can follow us as well on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, uh, again, we're not about anything other than what does the Bible say? That's all that matters. I have nothing worthwhile to say. You know, all that any of us can do is try to faithfully teach what God has said and let him speak through his word to all of us. Thank you, Tom. Well, Tom, you you are a real blessing to the church. I'm very thankful for you. We're going to make sure that we've got a link uh, to your new book, to the um, the conference session that we spoke about as well, and to the Word Unleashed. There'll be links to all of the uh, social media accounts and to your YouTube channel as well. Tom, thanks again for your time. Really enjoyed it. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate your kindness and, and uh, the Lord bless you in your ministry.